Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, very special Sunday mailbag edition and... The first new one in the series since we had a couple of weeks off. We did pre-record, so hopefully your Sundays were still full of mirth, merriment, and a little bit of foolish education. Or I should say foolish and straw-ish education, maybe. I'm not sure. Anyway, speaking of which, that's a horrible segue and introduction to Andrew Page from Strawman. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well, Mr. Phillips. How are you? Mate, I'm exceptionally well. Thank you for continuing to co-host these podcodcasts with me. They are one of the highlights of my week, so thank you for spending the time. Uh, For those who who haven't been listening for all that long, Andrew is a former fool, always a a friend of the fool. Uh, We work together, and Andrew and I started this podcast way back when. In fact, Andrew was the original host who did the intros, and in fact, one of our listeners mentions your intros that they fondly remember, mate. So there you go. I'm not sure sure what intros they're talking about or what it was, but... uh, we did, we did occasionally do a bit of a, a rock music pun back in the day because it was originally the Triple M Motley for Money podcast, so it may be those they're remembering, but you are not forgotten, mate, and that's, that's important. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I only have one question. What's Strawman? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was waiting for that one. Uh, <laughs> Good, there you go. We're, we're an investment club, pure and simple, for people who want to uh, share their ideas, have their ideas challenged, hence why it's called Strawman. We, we firmly believe that the best way to improve an investment idea is to have it challenged. It either stands up to scrutiny, in which case you've, you've hopefully got a bit more conviction and know you've, you're onto something special, or it gets shot down in flames, which can be a bit bruising to your ego, but I tell you what, it's a lot better than losing money on the market. So <laughs> yeah, that's, right. what, that's what we're all about. And uh, the best way is to go check it out, strawman.com, and you'll, you'll see very quickly what we're doing. All in the interest of uh, of being better, improving, which is which is the the key thing here. Hundred um, no, percent. No, no Wizard of Oz reference no, to the straw man of the Wizard of Oz. I suppose not. No. Okay. No, you know, it was actually. <laughs> Sorry. When uh, I've always like, there's, there's straw man actually means a few things, which I have I learned after we sort of registered <laughs> the business name. Oops. I, I liked. I've always, uh, for me, it was the logical fallacy. Yeah, or, yeah totally. or, or, You know, uh, yep. or it's, it's a form of uh, sort of argument. But there's, yes, yes. it's actually a legal terminology uh, in the US. You can set up a straw man, which is sort of like a legal person that doesn't exist in real life. There's, there's other, there's, there's other sort of takes on it, but. Yeah, I, I should have. That, you can see why a lot of tech companies go with silly names like Google and Uber, <laughs> yeah, and, right. and be, because like those words right. don't mean anything else. Oh, and so man, you, really you, you get to claim ownership, but when you choose a mm-hmm. word that already has meaning, well, you know, you make the mistake that I made. But anyway, let's let's not dig too deeply into that. Would it be would it be unkind for me to remind you that Uber actually does mean something? Is yeah, just, as, I, as I said that, I thought actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. And so, I know so what does. You mean. Google Google's are from Googleplex, right? Which is like right. one with a hundred zeros after exactly. it. So yeah, yeah. I've yeah. completely Spelt un- differently though. Spelt differently. So you, you, you're okay there. That's what I needed to do. Was spell that's it what differently. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. with a Z or an X or something would have been. <laughs> exactly. what you, got, you know what the other, the other problem you made is you didn't take your vowels out. This is got to take all the vowels. That should be S T R W M N. And that would have been the, exactly that's that's you. You still pronounce it straw man because you're cool and funky like that. And if you can if you can vary the capitalization, that's also useful. So just capitalize the W or something just for the sheer oh, fun of it. And so naive, so naive. When we started, yes. <laughs> there you go. You are from Strawman, mate. You are the you are the founder and managing director. You are the bloke who is going to lead Strawman, I'm sure, to fame, fortune, and glory. So I look forward to cheering on your success. I should say I'm from the Motley Fool. Um, I don't. I didn't found nor start nor am I managing director of the Motley Fool, but I'm the chief investment officer here in Australia. And Andrew and I share a passion for investing, a passion for educating and helping people uh, learn a little bit more, do a little bit better. And that's exactly why the podcast is here, mate. So thank you for continuing to join me in this in this fun journey. Should we get into our first question? Let's dive straight into it. It comes from Reese, mate. Reese says, hi, Scott and Andrew. 
I've been following The Foolish Way for the last few years now. After initially finding the podcast, trying to keep awake during my long work commute, and I'm starting to build some savings for my family's future. Well, awesome. if we're keeping you awake, Reese, it's better than putting you to sleep, I suppose, mate. So you, you, you're welcome. Um, and if, you, if we're your podcast of choice, mate, we appreciate that. Here we go. He says, my question is related to the speculation of the rise in interest rates. Now, we talked about this a little bit on Friday, mate. So mm, let's mm. go with Reese's response. And the reason I'm actually always question, the reason I'm asking the question is because of the last line in his, in his question. So let's get to it. Mm. He says, how do you plan on approaching the speculated increase in interest rates in relation to your investing? You're always adamant that your investing strategy never wavers when focusing on the long term, providing we continually add to the portfolio. However, he says, when comparing side by side the interest rate graph with the Vanguard long-term share value graph, it shows a long flat period while interest rates were high and I imagine savings accounts and home loan offset accounts, etc., would offer better options should the situation arise again. It seems a stretch, he says, that we, should, we would ever come near the rates seen back in the early 90s. However, the market seems to react to events a lot faster than previous due to a bunch of reasons, including the ease of access to markets and if any alternative options provide risk-free returns, it seems likely the money in the market would start to follow the array of alternative investments. And then Reese finishes with, look forward to hearing your calming response. Mm-hmm. Reese, Reese, that is a spectacularly good question, mate. There are plenty of people in your boat who I have one eye on the market, one eye on interest rates and trying to work out what comes next. And I also love the fact, mate, that Reese went back and looked at the history and went, well, okay, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. At least they're, they're not my words. They're, are they Randy Keynes' words? I can't remember. Someone, I'm not Keynes' so. words. Anyway, oh, okay. Reese didn't use those words, but I'll throw them out. Um, history doesn't repeat, it does rhyme. So he's looking back and saying, well, last time, mm. this was kind of not great for shares. Should we do something different? How are we going to approach rising rates? Now, you and I said on Friday, probably not hugely differently, but... I will ask you, if you're in an environment where you expect rates to rise, how are you putting that into your investing approach? Um, it's such a great question, and it is the question of yep. our time, <laughs> it I really think. It really is. Um, look, I'm, I, so I'd encourage Reese to go back and listen to, to Friday's episode, but I, yep. I always think it's really um, beneficial to try and zoom out and simplify things way back down to the basics. Here. I like it. Um, I think that's always a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go way back because you can you can very easily go down a very technical rabbit hole with all of this <laughs> stuff. So when I'm buying shares, I'm buying part ownership in a business mm-hmm. and I don't know what's going to affect what other people, how other people look at that business and, and value that business. So I always try to approach it as if I'm just, it's a private business and I'm mm-hmm. just buying it and I own the whole damn thing and what's a price that makes sense. And that price is going to depend on the cash that I can take out of that business. So if it was like my own private little business, little corner shop that I that I own, you know, how much am I making? Uh, how's that likely to change over time? And how am I going to sort of discount that back? And nice. so, so where interest rates comes into it is when you've got very high interest rates. If I'm getting 18%, just take an extreme example, <laughs> risk-free yep. Yep. It, yep. by yep. popping it in the, the Commonwealth Bank, why would I invest in the share market? I mean, why? Why would I do that? Why would I buy a business that, that is right. going to give me a 10% cash return from the from the dividends it pays and the earnings that it makes? I just I just wouldn't do it. So it definitely makes sense. But I, I try and think, I try and look at it in um, an absolute way and, and less okay. of a relative way in these things. So it's sort of like, well, if I'm going to invest in a business and all businesses involve risk and uncertainty and, and all the rest of it, I personally, this is just me, everyone will be different, but I personally, and I base this a little bit on history and a little bit on on um, 
the kind of returns that I, I just personally want as an investor. Mm-hmm. I would like to I would like to sort of see my um, a, a 10% discount rate mm-hmm. is probably about right. I like to see that as the, the the increase in my cash flows each year from that. I think you get something like that, it'll it'll translate into something that you will not regret in the fullness of time. Right. So so just like the long wind up here, but I'm just sort of saying here is is yes, all of these things matter. All, they all they are all um, um, are significant considerations, mm, but just mm. pretend you're buying the business outright. What what do you think its future stream of earnings looks like? Roughly, you'll never know for sure. Very very roughly, what does it look like? Discount that back at a rate that you feel is appropriate for the kind of return that you would want, um, and in and in some context to the risks that you see associated with that business. So the higher the risk, the the, the, the bigger the compensation that you would want, yep. um, and and you'll you'll come up with you'll come up with a value that that makes sense now. Does that does that mean that uh, you know it, it won't be impacted by short term prognostications and considerations over interest rates and how general market levels and multiples mm, are all affected? Mm, no, no, it won't. But if you if you get that broadly right, you still won't be particularly unhappy as an investor. Mm. Um, and as we said on Friday, I mean, some of those things have have meant that I have left money on the table in the past year, mm. looking mm. at some companies that I love, and they just you know that are oh, it's a little bit silly. They kind of assume that rates are going to stay low forever, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. you know, I'm 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 still done really well, <laughs> and I feel <laughs> as though over over time I, I continue to do so. I don't you don't have to swing at every pitch. You don't have to win every single game. I just want to try and make conservative bets where I feel as though I've got high conviction by making some very big, broad, and fairly hopefully safe assumptions mm-hmm. and, and getting it right more often than I get it wrong. And, you know, just keep it simple. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Oi, who you calling stupid? Um, <laughs> let's, I should may not roost. Mate, I, I, I don't disagree with much of that, although, as I said on Friday, I probably have a little bit more nuance, not in a necessarily even in a good way, just in a, the way I'm thinking about it. So, um, Reese, here, here's a couple of things. Firstly, I am assuming that rates will go up. I'm assuming that companies with debt will have to pay more for that debt, which will probably impinge on profitability to some degree. So the investor's first job, and Andrew kind of implied it, which is to look from here to the future, some sort of version of three, five years, maybe infinity, and say, what is this business worth? And the worth of the business is based on its future cash flows, right? And those cash flows are after all the debts are paid, after all the costs are covered. So I'm going to assume that businesses with high debt are going to have a more expensive debt load a, a higher number in that in that interest expense column for the foreseeable future so the first thing i'm doing is recognizing that businesses with high debt are going to be relatively speaking less profitable than they would be under low interest rate environments that's the first thing just being mindful of the likely impact on profitability for those companies second thing i'm doing is i am looking out and saying where there are businesses that are um are more speculative and or might need more money being raised from the markets. So businesses that are burning cash, for example, the cost and availability of that debt in future may also be higher. So I'm not necessarily avoiding those businesses. I'm just saying to myself, you know what? It's possible, I would say probable, that if rates are higher, those people are throwing cash at startups because where else do you throw it are going to have alternative options. And so it may impact on the availability or cost of debt, uh, sorry, equity, sorry, for those businesses so I'm, I'm also kind of just just handicapping those odds a little bit but i have to say like andrew the last thing i'm doing is nothing differently in the sense that i'm investing regularly because the other thing is you've you look back in history which is the right thing to do but we know exactly based on that history when that flat spot started and when it ended if it doesn't start for another three years and during that time the market goes up 35 percent then doing anything differently will have been an expensive mistake. You know, trying to put cash aside, not investing, going somewhere else, 
you know, the, the line I've used many, many times before is that, you know, it's a Morgan Hauser line, a former full colleague, who says, more money has been lost preparing for the next crash than in the crash itself. And that the, the idea there is not that the money is lost per se, but the opportunity to make money as the market goes up 10, 20, 30, 40%, while you're trying to avoid a crash of 10 or 20%, uh, it simply doesn't necessarily, in his view and in my view, pay for itself. So that, to my mind, is is what I think is worth being mindful of. So I'm investing regularly anyway, dollar cost averaging as I always do, um, and just trying to keep those um, keep those separate conversations. So understand the impact on the businesses, investing anyway in the best businesses I can find, but it probably does tilt slightly the companies I'm prepared to invest in or the relative attractiveness of two different businesses. If I can find one with debt and one without debt, uh, did I say one with? One with and one without. Um, I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't buy just one or just the other, but I'm going to look differently at the business with debt and maybe handicap it a little more harshly than I might have six months, two years, five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, fair, Ram? Yep. 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 Oh, man, there's so much to say about all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. The, the, one, the other, one other quick thing I'll mention is is that these interest rates are more impactful to longer-term earnings. So if, yes, that's good what, 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 is, what you need to remember is a lot of these early-stage growth companies who are unprofitable. So actually, got, they don't, the cash is going the wrong way. It's going yeah. out. It's not <laughs> yeah, coming in. That's right. Um, but market, and <laughs> probably not necessarily, this isn't stupid. The market's happy to pay a lot of money for these because mm-hmm. they recognize that they've got a long runway. They've got good traction. Mm-hmm. They've got, a nice economics, uh, you know, or the potential for it at, at scale. Mm. Um, but but if the money is sort of made 10 years out, then the impact of higher interest rates is going to be much more extreme than a business that is making money today and next year and the year after. That is just the right, way right. that the maths works. It's hard to describe um, verbally. Yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah. So so just another angle on this, if you are particularly worried about higher interest rates, it is the growth stocks mm-hmm. that, that are probably more impacted to that not only yeah. for the reason yeah. I mentioned, but also for the reason that they are also the ones that are on higher multiples yes. uh, cr- currently as well. So, yeah, just just factor it all in, into your thinking. And as I said before, think in absolute terms and just be conservative. Nice. Here's one from Oliver, mate. He says, hi, Scott and Andrew. Your podcast, Motley Fool Share Advisor and Strawman provide insightful and valuable information to investors. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. There are many new thematic ETFs, he says. Do you think they are useful as a low-risk investment in a growth sector? Alternatively, are we buying just both the winner and the loser and we'll end up getting the average return? He says, minus the fees. In some cases, some active thematic ETFs actually perform worse than passive in the same sector. For example, the tech ETF is based on Morningstar moat methodology with the majority of its holdings being US tech companies, but it performed worse than the NASDAQ since its inception in 2017. I would love to hear your opinions on thematic ETFs. That's from. I oh, sorry, that's from Jason, not Oliver. That's from Jason. Sorry, Jason. Um, what do you reckon, Ram? Thematic ETFs, yeah. good, bad, indifferent? Yeah, I, I, I th- we've we've talked about it before. I, I think ETFs are great as a general rule. Um, we, you and I are on the record as sort of saying that we we prefer the big, broad based, low cost index tracking ones. Correct. Um, and there's a lot of good evidence to sort of suggest that. Now, the investment bankers have gotten hold of the, <laughs> the of the fact that these are very popular, and they are creating products left, right, and center that that will fill an. Uh, the, feel that demand Um, and these things sound really great because you a lot of very sensible people will say I think electric cars are going to be a big thing in the future Mm -hmm. I think X is going to be a big thing I think technology whatever happens to be Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're building products that satisfy that 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 urge 
I just think that if you are going to... So, again, I, I think the big broad-based ones are just the no-brainers. They're easy. Mm-hmm. You'll look back in hindsight and go, well, I could have gone that thematic. I could have gone that thematic. I would have, I would have done better. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the whole point of an ETF is it's just like <laughs> you kind of guarantee the average, which by definition means you won't get the best return, mm-hmm. but you'll but the average is really good and it's really easy and and it's very very low cost. The more active an ETF is, the more the more someone's thinking is getting involved in it and they might be great thinkers, they might have great methodology or they might not. <laughs> Plus the fees tend to be a little a little bit higher uh, and I just I uh, yeah, I I I I think I think you get to the point where it's like if you've got such strong views on a general thematic and the kinds of businesses you like, be a stock picker like we are, right? Mm, like just go mm. buy the actual stocks. Um, but if you want the passive approach and all the benefits that that brings, then you just go the, the passive broad-based index following ETF is my view. What mm. do you think? Mm. I completely agree. And you're right. We have talked about this before. I The only dif- the only difference I would make or the only different point I would probably make in terms of – so, yeah, I, I would actually <laughs> – again, I, I like to make broad prognostications. I pretend I was king of the world. I would actually make the companies rename themselves. ETF was supposed to be something that described broad-based index funds at low cost and have very quickly become any manufactured product that happens to be a fund listed on the market. Now, the ETF name isn't wrong. It it, it is perfectly described. There's there's nothing dodgy going on here. It perfectly describes what it is. It's an exchange traded. In other words, on the ASX, that's a fund. Pretty straightforward, right? The problem is that that, anything can be... You and I could... You and I could list, you know, uh, my dog walking business as, as an ETF if I wanted to. If I, if I made it a fund and we put it together and said that was what it was, um, you know, anything can be an ETF. So the the phrase ETF used to be, these are great because they're ETFs, but has now become, these are just other investment options that are all, you know, great and terrible and everything in between. So completely agree. Where I would, I don't have a lot of thematic ETFs necessarily at all. Um, where I would probably make a slight exception is if you can get access to assets you can't buy on the ASX and you don't have a US brokerage account or international brokerage account, right? So I own shares in an Asia technology ETF, for example, not specifically because I expect Asia technology to outperform massively and they're making some massive bet, rather that because I expect that there'll be a lot of companies built in Asia that are tech leaders in that market. And I don't want to and don't have the technology or expertise to actually understand who's likely to be better. So I want that exposure um, not because I'm not because I'm backing the theme as the big winning theme necessarily, but I do expect it to do well because of that that reality. So there's 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 something in that, but broadly outside that, I wouldn't be buying stuff that, as you say, mate. It, so here's the thing: when manufacturers they call it product manufacturers, which should give you the first symbol or first sign, when they invent a product, they're not doing it because they also believe that electric cars are great. They're doing it because they reckon you think electric cars are great, and you're paying money to do this. They're literally they're, they're selling you what they think you will buy not what they think will go really well as an investment. They're, they're, create, they're creating the thing to say, you know, I think this will market really, really well. They're in the sales business, not the investment business, right? And that's a really, really important distinction because they, the other thing about passive ETFs is they can pretend they've got nothing to do with it. Well, it wasn't us. It's a mm-hmm. passive ETF. So mm-hmm. imagine, imagine you're in a business where you get to leverage everyone else's excitement about something, but you don't actually, you're not on the hook for any returns because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You, you, you know, I mean, if the returns fall, people will take their money out. So you make a bit less money. But it's not your response. If, if, I'm, if I run share advisor that way, if I, if, I, if I pick bad stocks, it's absolutely on me. Because I've said to you, I will try and beat the market with these stocks, right? So it's yeah. on me. If I just said, hey, welcome, join share advisor where we will match the market. When, or, you know, we, we will invest in the share motley full electric vehicle ETF, right? If I did that, I, don't, I, claim, I have no investment responsibility whatsoever. I just make money by selling it to you. 
So mm. it's, a, it's not even an investment game. It's a purely sales game, which doesn't make mm. it bad because index ETFs are wonderful. Um, but I think that's that's the reality. So I would, Jason, look, the one thing I would say in defense of, say, tech, for example, this ETF is that the Morningstar Moat methodology has valuation included. And frankly, the PEs of growth stocks have been on a tear for the last probably seven or eight years. So I don't expect a value-based strategy to beat a growth strategy, which effectively is the NASDAQ ETF, over that when, when the market's in that mood. Um, so to some degree, honestly, as long as the tech ETF is clear about what they're trying to do, and if they're clear and they do do that, which is they're allowing for valuation, if you're buying it on that basis and you know that's what you're buying, then again, you probably can't expect them to outperform the NASDAQ when growth is in vogue, right? So there is there is that. I'm not, I have no interest in the, in the mob who make tech at all. But to be fair, if I say I'm going to invest this way, and I do, I'm going to get the returns that that strategy delivers. And I wouldn't expect, you know, if I had a value fund today, I would have underperformed for the last 10 years. Um, does it make it okay? Probably not. But I said I'm a value investor. You you bought my fund because I'm a value investor because you wanted that strategy. Then you kind of get what you, you get, what you get, you get what you choose. And that's probably exactly what they should deliver rather than try and change strategy to chase to chase returns for what it's worth. Mm. Mm. Hey, um, a question from Oliver, mate. This is a really good one. Hi, how do you factor in the number of outstanding shares into a price valuation, if at all? Love the show, he says. Enjoy your well-deserved break. Thanks, Oliver, I did. Uh, unless you mean Andrew's well-deserved break from talking to me, which is also, I'm sure he did. Um, so I will, <laughs> Enjoyed I will it assume, immensely. <laughs> I will assume you mean me, Oliver, but maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Um, number of outstanding shares, Andrew, how does, how does it factor into your valuation? Oh, it's massive. You know, it's, it's, it's crucial. So Tell me how. Shares, shares are the currency that we deal with. So a company is worth whatever a company is worth, but, yep. you know, we're, we're buying part ownership in it and it's, it's broken up into X number of shares. So, yep. you know, if, if you have to, if you're as a sensible, uh, objective, rational investor trying to work out what is a fair price for a company, mm-hmm. you know, I, would, mm-hmm. I would argue very strongly that you, you should do that. Well, you need to translate that down to the level of the shares. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think, I think what Oliver's probably getting at here is that that sounds pretty obvious, but it's a bit more complicated than that because you have shares, fully paid ordinary shares, but then you might have options <laughs> outstanding. You might have uh, employee shares that are yet to vest. Mm-hmm. You might have uh, all kinds of different sort of securities that – so this is when if ever you're sort of digging into this, you'll hear um, from time to time uh, people talk about – uh, the diluted share count. Yes. And what the diluted share count is, is it takes all of the shares that are on the market and that are out there, but it also adds to that what the share count would be if outstanding options are exercised, if employee mm-hmm. shares mm-hmm. vest, if performance shares for the CEO vest. And I actually, that is that is definitely the way I roll. Um, not all options will convert, um, but it's, yeah. a, it's the more conservative side of things. So what I want to know, if, particularly as a long-term investor, so I'm buying shares hopefully for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. I want to I take what I think the company is worth and divide it by the total number of shares that will probably be out on the market. Um, at, in the future. In fact, if I'm dealing with, and I often do, because I love I love my small caps, I love my growth <laughs> companies. I often I often uh, increase ec- increase the share count to allow for likely capital raises because yeah. as companies, you know, they, they they go back to the market from time to time. Particularly if they're, if they're not profitable, they have to just to stay afloat. <laughs> yep. Um, so I think it's I think it's very sensible to uh, to factor in that added likely dilution because if you don't, you can find that it just throws the mass out on a lot of these things at all so hopefully yeah that, that's what I think hopefully that helps what, what do you reckon mate nice mate I got absolutely nothing to add to that I think that's absolutely perfect I was going to mention the dilution thing and future share count or potential for dilution is absolutely the key one because current share count 
is already in the price, is already in the market cap. It's kind of, I mean, you don't need to, right? If you, if you look at the per share earnings and the per share price or the total market cap and the total earnings, that by definition, the difference between those two numbers is the share count. So you don't really have to do anything with it. The market's already, or the, the company already prepared the information for you. But as you say, mate, diluting for share issuances, options, bonuses, other things, and or uh, capital raising, super, super important. Can I get just a, just just for fun? Can oh, I go dear. a little little bit more into the weeds no, here? Really, all right, go on. <laughs> I'll go be quick. <laughs> so the other thing you'll hear from time to time is what people call the free float. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the free float is are those share, there might be a million shares outstanding, but there might only be five hundred thousand shares that are actively traded because the others are locked up under escrow or yep. something yep. like that. So. Um, you know, uh, in theory, there's a million shares, but those the, the the liquidity that that would represent is not seen on the market because these other ones are just locked up for a variety of, of reasons. Um, sometimes you see this too, particularly in small cap land where the founder owns a heap of shares, mm. um, and they just or the family owns a bunch of shares, <laughs> and they just yeah. they don't they could sell them, but they're probably not going to. Which means that the shares and when there's the the, the less free float that you have, that those that are sort of available and and, and can mm-hmm. be expected to be traded on the market. It does actually reduce, obviously reduces the liquidity, but that tends to have the impact of increasing the volatility yep. as well. So it's just something it's something to be to be mindful of. It is, mm-hmm. fun fact, it is the reason why, maybe this has changed recently, you'd, you'd know this, mate, maybe it's changed recently, but for the longest time, Sol Pats wasn't included in yes. the ASX 200. Yep. Yep. Now, on, on its market cap, in terms of its size, mm-hmm. it should easily make it in because it's a yep. huge company. It yep. didn't, and because the other thing that S&P look at when they're creating their indices is the free float. And that's because Mm -hmm. so many of the shares were were locked up by by the the Milners. I will say I'm not entirely sure whether it was free float or liquidity, daily volume that was the the issue that kept it out of the index, but I don't, you may well be right. It could be either. But related. Kind of related, exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 For for the longest time too, Blackmore is actually, again, a company I own, I own Soul Pets too, for the record. Um, Blackmore's was the same. It, 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 between Marcus Blackmore, who owned a decent, very large minority of the shares, and because the company was kind of small and not well followed, most of the shareholders were kind of these long-term, I won't say family and friends, because that, that, that's doing them a disservice, but they were really long-term shareholders who, who had invested in the company years ago and just never wanted to sell their shares. Yeah. And so some, some yeah. days, Blackmore's, I want to say it was like single-digit thousands for a business that was worth at the time well over $500 million. It was, it was doing, you know, single-digit thousands of shares a day at an $1,800 share price. Just super small. And, and the same thing because those who owned them, even though they, it was still free float, but it was effectively yeah. not because no one was going to sell. They had just people who bought their shares, had their shares, liked the company or invested in the business because they believed in what it was doing and just didn't do anything with the shares. So yeah. you're right, it can happen it can happen a lot. Definitely. <clears throat> Question from Thomas, mate. He says, um, I greatly appreciate all the advice and info from all of the Motley Fool podcasts. Thank you, mate. Please forward these potential questions to Scott Phillips for his July podcast. Well, we didn't make July, Thomas. I'm sorry. Oh, we did actually, but it was when I was back rather than when I was gone. Hello, Scott. He says, love the podcast and greatly appreciate the investment info from you, Andrew, and previously from Doc. Please consider these questions for your July podcast. I hope you have a fantastic time off. I did, Thomas, and I'm sorry we didn't get to these before I went, mate, but we are going to do them now. He says, for newer investors. Oh, dear. Here's a... Um, here's a Try and, keep, try and keep your language PG, Andrew's all the same events. <laughs> For newer investors, EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA. Can you explain both in simple form and where this info can be readily found when looking into a new potential stock pick? Also, what is TAM? I hear the term more often. I uh, sorry, I hear the term moat often. And would like to hear you clarify what you mean when you say the company has a long-term moat. Wow, lots of good questions. Even more coming. All right, let's go. <laughs> There's like five questions. Let's do them reasonably simply, mate, reasonably quickly if we can. Mm. EBITDA. Adjusted EBITDA. Firstly, 
What does EBITDA stand for? Then tell me what it is. Okay. Well, I, I, I language warning ahead um, oh, is all I'll say. Um, Why should so keep it PG, dude? Come on. EBITDA is E-B-I-T-D-A. It stands for Earnings Before Interest, Tax, Depreciation and Amortization. Nicely done. And then you have Adjusted EBITDA, which is that same thing again, but they'll sort of exclude or include various things that they might be considered one-off. Mm-hmm. So why would you look at the profitability of a business but before you factor in any interest costs or any tax costs or any depreciation charges or non-cash amortization, why would you do that? Mm. Well, Charlie Munger would say you shouldn't, and that's why he calls it <laughs> bullshit earnings. Um, so apologies, <laughs> apologies for the language there, but um, yeah, it's just there's, there's just no better way. I mean, I, I don't I don't like to to use that language unnecessarily, but there's just no better way to to, mm-hmm. to describe it. Now, the, the 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 defenders would say it is useful because it it ignores the capital structure of a business. So some businesses can have a lot more leverage than others. And it's just sort of saying, well, regardless of whether it's an equ- a largely equity or, um, structured business or it's, it's debt and equity, we're just looking at how is this thing, how is how is the profitability ignoring the capital structure right. of the business? Because the, 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 the boffins, I, I don't know if you agree with it or not, the boffins would say that equity has a cost as well. Yes. And while that's never in the financials because it's kind of external to the company, there is a cost to the business of having equity. And so to allow for effectively, as you say, so when we say capital structure, we mean there are some businesses with all equity, no debt, some businesses with an absolute truckload of debt and a little bit of equity and, and lots in between there. And a PE, price divided by earnings, treats those very, very differently. But as a, but both ignore the cost of having shareholders, the cost of the equity component. So this one effectively adjusts to take out that differentiation just says as an operating business alone if I exclude the way the, the business is funded then here's just the profit it makes before we consider funding costs is that is that reasonably close? That You've said it much better than I can and which is why I'm actually a little bit more sympathetic to mm-hmm. the cousin of EBITDA which is EBIT which is just earnings before interest and tax because um, right. I think ta- business has no control over its tax environment well <laughs> there's another rabbit hole we could go down <laughs> let's, but not go down. Let's, let's not go down but <laughs> business has no no control ostensibly over the sort of the tax that it pays mm-hmm. um, and, and and you take out when you take out interest you you ignore that capital structure I think that's reasonable yep. Yep. D- d- depreciation and amortisation often get taken out because they're treated as non-cash charges. So it tries to be a more accurate re- reflection between uh, statutory reported net profit and what might be the cash, actual cash profit that, yeah. a, that, a, that a company is able to generate. There is where you have huge potential for uh, shenanigans um, because what I would say is a depreciation, depreciation, oh God, how do we get through this quickly? A company, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm digging a mine and I buy yeah. a bunch of trucks and tractors yeah. and, and diggers and all this kind of stuff it costs a huge amount of money all that cash goes out the door the day one but i'll use them for the next 10 years and so what the accountants say is well very rightly you can actually take that cost and and depreciate it over that time it's a more accurate representation of the true economics of the business even though the cash went out the door on day one you get to you know does that mean that the day uh, year two where no cash has gone out to pay for that tractor you still don't get to use it so it just spreads the cost out and that's a really great thing to do the the only accounting is it's called the matching principle right it tries to match the revenue against the costs mm. and in this case if a truck is used to produce 10 years worth of revenue then yes. you should allocate its cost across those 10 years to re- to basically recognise the fact that the money is earned over 10 years, the cost is therefore incurred over those same 10 years, not the cash cost, but the actual kind of economic cost to the business of using the equipment is over those 10 years in, in this particular story, for example. 
And, and amortization is exactly the same concept. It just relates more to intangible assets. So yep. customer lists, uh, brand, all these kinds of other, other things as well that, that you might have. I mean, actually, brand's not the best example, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, now, where is where it gets ripe for manipulation is, is that you <laughs> can... It, it's harder to do with a truck, but if I'm making software and I mm-hmm. capitalize a bunch of my, so I, I pay my developers $2 million last year. And then I say, well, that actually wasn't an expense that goes in my income statement. That's actually mm-hmm. an investment I made and now for, goes on my balance sheet. So we're getting a bit into the weeds here. Um, you know, you might argue that that's probably not actually reasonable for a business that is a, is a software developer and has that cost every year. So actually it, the, the cash flows do more accurately accurately match up with it. So mm. it's just that, not that it's necessarily wrong or companies are doing anything dodgy per se. It's just more open to, in- EBITDA gives businesses much more flexibility to have mm. to hide mm. what is really going on. So it's mm. useful, but just, just you've always got to dig into the, the detail there. We could go on and on and on, but uh, we won't. Um, be careful with EBITDA. Yeah, I, look, I so I've gone, I've gone full circle on this one. Um, I, I started off, I started off using the financial statements because I was taught at uni. I was then convinced that cash is king and that, you know, the, the profit and loss is whatever the accountants want it to be, which is true because you can mm. pretty much make it up and do whatever you want with it. And then I've kind of ended up somewhere in between where, and this is really hard if you're a new investor because what I'm going to say is it depends, which sucks because people just want to know, like, what do I do? Mm. Um, amortizing a customer list, I think, is the stupidest bastardization of accounting I've heard of in a very long time in a, ge- mm. in a general sense because if you so I, I made a recommendation of M2 Telecom back in the day and they looked really expensive because they had to amortize their customer list they'd bought over three years but the customers were saying a heap longer than that so effectively the accounting rules let me just, let me just sorry in, interrupt you just, just, so, so they've, they've, acqu- they've acquired a business and part of the assets that they've acquired yep. includes includes all their customers yep and the accountants will sort of say, well, you know, you'll lose those customers over time. Right. And so you should amortize that. But as, as, as we all know, that actually yeah. a good, a well-run business, they'll actually probably retain them much longer than has been accounted for. Thank Sorry, mate. So just just no, no, there, I'm glad just- you did, mate. That was perfect. So, yeah, if you, if you buy a business for a million dollars, you might buy $100,000 worth of fixed assets. And the other $900,000 you buy is because you're buying their customers. Yep. And so you, the, the accounting treatment is your, your ca- million dollars cash goes out the door. You have a million dollars worth of assets, hundred thousand worth of assets come in the door, and nine hundred thousand dollars worth of what they call goodwill. So the extra you pay on top of the the, the the actual hard assets has to be accounted for somewhere. And if some of that is customers, as you rightly say, Raymond, thank you for pointing it out, they have to be then re- you effectively recognise an expense. So your profitability over three years in this instance, three hundred thousand dollars a year of air quotes expense, because in theory the customer list is worth less, and it is worth some less because some people do absolutely go away. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm. But M2, when we bought it, had this massive amortization expense for, for customers, which were, never, which were never going to go away at that rate. And because it was an expense or an air quotes expense, made the, made the earnings look lower than they otherwise were. The cash earnings were much higher than the reported earnings because of that element. And so I looked at it and went, hang on, this is this business. And it was, excuse me, this was back in the day. So it was trading something like 16 times earnings. When you allowed for the amortization, it was down like 12 times earnings. And I'm like, man, like this, you know, this business is at a cash level doing really well. Now, so in that case, I made an adjustment. Um, and I think that's some degree sensible. In other cases, though, you shouldn't make an adjustment because that's a real, you know, as you say, mate, depreciating a truck, the truck is literally going to stop working at some point. And so yeah. you're going to have to replace it. And it makes sense to allow for it. So I, I try and do both. This is where, I, I mean, I agree with Charlie in the sense that 
EBITDA, there's so many potential adjustments. It's already accounting to start with. Then you adjust for this and the other and the other. It gets really silly really fast. So I don't use it for valuation. What I do tend to use it for is for understanding the operating success of the business. Mm -hmm. So as an operating business, before those, as you say, interest can change from year to year. Tax can change from year to year. Depreciation and amortization are largely non-cash as long as it's a business that's it, you know, a business as usual business. So to your point on software, if you are a software business, you spent five years writing software, then that's a massive chunk of your cost is that amortization. You've got to be really careful with that. But if you're, a, if you're Woolies, right, and you're not investing in excess capital or excess machines, and every five years or three years you replace the shelving, as long as that's a consistent cost, you can kind of afford to either include it or exclude it because it's not going to make a difference to the change. And what it allows you to do if you extrapolate that stuff out is say, how's the operating business doing? Before I do all those accounting adjustments, is Woolies selling more or less baked beans and they're keeping their costs in check? Mm. And so to some degree, I, I like that as a measure of operational um, success, growth or failure over time, but I don't tend to use it for valuation purposes for the reasons you've already pointed out, Ram. Mm. So mm. that's where, mm. to my mind, is a bit of a sometimes this, other times not. And I know it's crappy that we have to say it depends, um, but I do tend to use that. I think it's more useful because NPAT, for example, net profit after tax, you can have companies with big tax bill changes year on year. Uh, we've, we've seen plenty of those. If you don't adjust for that, um, so here's a, here's a great example, right? Let's say you're, you're a loss-making business. You like your small caps, Ram. Mm-hmm. For, for years, if you're making a loss, you pay no tax. Mm-hmm. You can rack up those tax losses as assets you can use later to mm-hmm. offset tax otherwise payable. So let's say the first year you make a profit, you still pay no tax because you've got all these tax losses. The second year, you pay no tax. And if you just look at the, the profit numbers, you say, oh, wow, this business is now profitable. That's great. And on a PE basis, it's only 10. Wow, that's great. Because they're still, they're still claiming a tax deduction. All of a sudden, when that tax <laughs> starts being paid in year three or four or five, mm. profit will go down. And it should because it's real money going out all of a sudden. Mm. And if you've used those pre-tax numbers and then all of a sudden it starts paying tax, the profit, the future is actually much less bright than it otherwise might have looked. So That was, really was LTM for a while. Yeah. It was, yes. Yeah, heaps of them might have yeah. done exactly that. If you don't yeah. allow for the fact that 30% of profit all of a sudden disappears once you're taxable, Mm. That really changes your forecast. All right, let's move on, mate, because we've got a heap of questions, uh, even even the ones just straight from, from Thomas. Question two, what's TAM? T-A-M? Total, uh, total, uh, God, we love our acronyms in this uh, industry, we, don't we? Um, total addressable market. So it's just basically the the opportunity that a company has. If I own a corner shop in my local suburb, mm-hmm. my total addressable market is probably everyone who lives in that, that suburb. Now, does yep. that mean that I could get everyone there? Um, there's probably other corner shops that might compete for that <laughs> business. But in theory, the maximum market opportunity that I have. Yes, and this market. is also something which is a really sensible thing for investors to look at, especially Especially if you're in a growth market, you yep. know, and or a growth business, and they're sort of saying, "Listen, we 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 are we think that there's a billion dollar market opportunity out there. Mm-hmm. We think we can capture fifty percent of that over the next ten years." I mean, it's really you, you need to kind of do those or, or work through those assumptions to sort of have any kind of uh, idea as to what. Uh, what the growth is going to be. That being said, again, you've got to take these things with with a grain of salt because. You know, no one really knows exactly how big the total addressable market is. The total yeah. addressable market can contract or expand, and this is what's thrown me in the past as well. You kind of, yeah, it's a it's a reasonable sized market, but you don't you you forget the fact that the market itself is probably growing at twenty or thirty yeah. percent per year. You know, what was the total addressable market for Afterpay when it first launched? It was like, well, mm-hmm. no one had mm-hmm. buy now pay later. So, on one definition, it was zero. On another another definition, it was the total value of all uh, transactions mm-hmm. in the world. Which you know, so, so there's a huge scope there. 
for sort of subjectivity. Um, so yeah, you, you need to be mindful of that. And you also need to be mindful of what, they, so businesses love to sort of quote these huge numbers. And that, even if the number is absolutely bang on accurate, you know, you, you still have to assume that they can capture the amount that they feel they can capture in the time frame that they feel they, they can capture it. I like that, mate. A um, couple of things just from me. Addressable is important. So total market, there's 7 billion people on earth. That's a total market for everything, right? Possible. Yep. But it's addressable. Um, simple example, if you're selling, uh, let, let's say, hair restoration cream for blokes, given my lack of it, um, <laughs> then the market's only half the world, right? And even then, how many people can afford it? So you need to, you need to be careful that you don't just kind of do this. And plenty of companies do it. I, I am always cynical when a company starts the second page of its ASX presentation with total addressable market, 84 billion people. It's like, yeah, probably not. Um, they do it, by the way, to try and get you excited about it, right? Imagine if we could do this. Oh, wow. Like, well, yeah, okay, great. That's That sounds exciting. And you start doing the maths, right? Wow, if you could only get 1% of China. And again, if you could, <laughs> if is a big word, you know, it's the, the world's second smallest word. Um, and yet <laughs> it, is, it is just, it hides a multitude of sins. So there's that. Um, I also would say that if you add together the addressable market from all the companies out there, then almost by definition, they can't all have that market, right? So mm. just because the market for um, men's hair restoration cream is, let's say, 15 million Australians, I'll, I'll just round pick a number, uh, maybe it's what, 12 and a half million Australians. Um, if, if there's 84 companies out there all saying their total addressable market is 12 and a half million, they're not wrong, but they can't all have it. And so it's also worth remembering that you can't just add those numbers together and say, well, look, if these companies are all successful, so no, 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 they can't be. And so if you've got more than one company in a space, A, you want to win or at least come second or third with a reasonable size, but don't make the mistake of just multiplying the numbers. Wow, $10 per month for 12.5 million Australians every year. Man, that, you know, that's a massive market. Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. So just, just be careful of that as well. Yep. Andrew, what's a moat? Oh, man. So a moat is a term that was uh, coined by Mr. Warren Buffet. And uh, it refers to, it's kind of like what you would um, imagine, like in the old days, it was a uh, bit of water that surrounded a castle and it would it afforded uh, uh, protection to that, to that castle. And right. an economic moat is the same kind of idea. It's something, it's a characteristic that the business possesses mm-hmm. that makes it difficult for competitors to encroach into your territory yep. and thereby gives you a bit of degree of pricing power there's a whole area of study on this we could we could spend the next six weeks doing hour-long podcasts and sort of just scratch the surface but broadly speaking you've got things like scale as an advantage you've got intangibles like uh, uh, patents uh, brand is a very strong moat Um, you've got things like switching costs you know how difficult it is to 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 change um, things uh, what else? Oh, and my favorite, my favorite of all time, Moat. Uh, no, well, I, I put oh, that under the switching cost of that one. Okay. Network effects. <laughs> I think network effects are the best yeah. one. That, that's where something, the more that someone uses something or people use it, mm, the stronger mm, mm. it becomes. So this is, this is Visa. This is MasterCard. Uh, this, there's a, this is uh, Facebook. This is, you know, Facebook's yeah. value comes from the fact that Super more people, strong. and the more that people use it, the more advantageous it is to sort of be on yes. there. And they're very difficult moats. And because of these moats that these companies have, they are very, very strong. They've got a huge amount of pricing power. And they're just very, you and I could have the best developers in the world. Yeah. We could have a billion dollars each. Yeah, and I reckon right. we, we, could, we could not 
we could not overtake Facebook in terms of the 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 market that it operates in in mm-hmm. terms of that social mm-hmm. network. It's too hard. They, they, that 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 moat that they possess is too deep. It's too wide, and it's too full of crocodiles for us to even consider <laughs> a, 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 attacking. So yeah, moats moats. I've got to say, when I am when I am looking at a business, like, yep. the, asking the question of what is their moat, how strong and durable is it, is one mm-hmm. of the one of the main things I try to address. By the way, by the way, sorry, I'm going on a bit here, but one of the because since it's sort of been popularized and people have recognized the significance of it, people talk about it all the time, rightly. But I do think that people tend to see things that aren't always, you know, oh, they've got this yeah. wonderful moat because of this. Like, well, there's there yeah. some moats are pretty skinny and shallow with with some tadpoles in it. You know, they're they're, they're yeah. not they're not as they're not all moats are created equal, and people love to sort of talk about them. So you have to you have to look mm-hmm. at it objectively mm-hmm. and, and a little bit skeptically, I think. I like it. Um, sustainable competitive advantage is the three-word example of that. So it needs to be something yes. that differentiates you. It needs to be sustainable. And Andrew's given a great summary of those. Um, <laughs> when a software company claims to be an enterprise software company, what does that mean, Andrew? Uh, I'm going first here all the time. You I know. Want, you good, go- isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take it because it's easy. Okay, enterprise go. means they sell to businesses. So enterprise software is software used by enterprises. Uh, it's kind of an American term. We don't really use that term here in Australia, but just it's software used by companies is, is the simplest, easiest way to explain that one. Yeah, so so a good example uh, here would be with integrated research. It's got a product called Prognosis, which helps mm-hmm. big Fortune 500 type companies monitor mm-hmm. all their communications and stuff. Like you and I, as an individual consumer, are never going to buy it. We're not the mm-hmm. target market, mm-hmm. um, you know. Whereas you look at, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of an example. Um, this is should not be as hard as I'm making it out to be. But uh, what's what's a give me an example of a consumer oriented software, mate? Help me out. Um, uh, Microsoft Office. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Nice. Not that hard. Not that hard. Yeah, uh, there, there aren't there aren't a lot many of them. It's a, good, it's a good point you raise actually because we think about software businesses and it does require some extra effort because most big software companies are providing software to other businesses. If you think about the stuff that we use, we kind of use Google, we kind of use Microsoft, arguably Apple is a, you know, its operating system or Google's Android operating system is, is consumer software. Um, so you can kind of draw some lines, but most of it is stuff that's in, that's put in by, um, uh, put, put in, into businesses by businesses. So that's kind of enterprise software. Yeah. And I've got, got to say one thing on that though, yeah. with, with enterprise software, enterprise um, uh, software is a really nice niche mm. Be- mm. because enterprises uh, it's a longer sales cycle it's harder to win these contracts but generally speaking of trapdoor moats and switching costs before the great thing about enterprise software companies as a general rule is that one a very big once a very big company has elected to go in a certain direction with a certain product it's very hard to displace and so you tend you tend to when once you're on the inside here technology one is a good example uh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, that's good one. Yeah. of this yeah. in Australia they do software to governments uh, 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 of different scales and it just it just it's really hard to switch away from because if yeah. If you're running a big organization, you've probably spent, you know, SAP and Oracle are other classic examples here. You've probably spent years integrating it into your system. Once you're in, you're in and you've got <laughs> immense pricing power. So it's a yeah, lovely area. Yeah. If you're successful, it's a lovely area to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a good point. Um, last one from, this is a longer one, so let me get through it quickly. And last, he says, I hear warnings about mining stocks, gold ETFs, ex-tracker stocks. I've heard these have no real assets but they track the price of a commodity such as gold, rhodium, platinum, et cetera, and crypto ETFs. I would like to add some diversity by adding crypto, especially interested in Ethereum, he says, and some precious metals to my portfolio. Are there companies or funds in these areas that are trustworthy and have genuine long-term growth potential that would be worth adding a small position to a portfolio? 
This could be worth what worldwide, he said, as I'm joining you from the US. Thanks for listening from the US, Thomas. Thanks again for the fantastic podcast, Full On Thomas. Mate, mm. uh, ETFs for cryptos or precious metals? Uh, look, I, 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 it's one of these things that people and the industry has trained us to think this is that <laughs> you must have exposure in a bit of this, in a bit of that. And, like, <laughs> yeah. and I just think, why? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, exactly. you want diversity, totally you want diversity, but being, if the only reason you're investing in a particular industry or sector or area is because you feel as though you should have exposure to that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. For the Some, sake of it's the right thing, it's the, it's the responsible, uh, sophisticated thing to do, right? I just, I don't, I don't get it i don't have any mining exposure never have and i've gotten really great returns over a very long period of time you know um you you don't have to just because it's there it it it, and and i would say that we've 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 been very negative towards a lot of these spaces not because of some i'd like to think blind ideology just because of many 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 decades of objective history um and precedent which suggests that as on always exceptions totally and some very massive exceptions but generally as a rule they just tend to be uh, it's, it's where capital goes to die a lot of these places so yeah, yeah. I will not lose a wink of sleep knowing that I have no exposure to rhodium <laughs> I just <laughs> uh, I, I don't I'm okay with that I'm okay with that um, now, that, now that, that's me being pretty cynical but if, if you on the other hand are sitting there going actually I know quite a bit about this yeah. I actually got a lot of I've got a high conviction that this is something that will be worth more in the future that's a different story yeah. it's a totally different story I'm just saying don't go there just because some broker has said, oh, it's a good idea to have exposure to gold. Um, you, know, you, you need, you never have a very firm view on that as to why it is not only a, a good investment uh, potential for you, but better than other potentials. So this is all opportunity cost. This is all relative kind of thing. So so for me, um, no, you, you, there's, there's no reason to sort of go into these spaces for the sake of it. And if I was going to go into that space, I think probably... I think Thomas is right to have some sort of broad ETF that gives you exposure makes it makes it a lot less risky. Um, yeah. But yeah, for me, for me, I'm I'm quite comfortable without without a lot of those things. I agree, um, and I honestly, as a result, I kind of don't know the answer, Thomas, because I don't spend a lot of time doing it. Um, so, firstly, I would say choose a reputable fund manager. Um, if all else fails, choose Vanguard is my general approach. If you find someone else like a BlackRock, they they're reasonable, reputable fund managers. Um, go go with go with that for what it's worth. If you want to, um, I wouldn't do any of it. I don't do any of it. If you pick up the Vanguard index chart, I've mentioned this a hundred times. But here's the thing: if you look at shares, for example, Australia or international, they're at the very top right hand corner of that graph. Anything else you'd bought below that, by definition, lowers your average return. It mm. would have saved you from some volatility during that period. It would have made the downs feel less bad in most cases. It would have made the ups feel less good in some cases. And overall, it would have cost you money by definition. If you average, I, I, won't, I won't get the numbers roughly right. Let's say the international shares are up 10%, Australian shares up 9 cash up 4 By definition, as soon as you add any cash to that portfolio or any precious metals or any property that had a lower average return you're lowering your total return. Now, some people want to do that for volatility or just to feel better sleep at night. I get it. If that's you, I understand why you might want it, Thomas. To Andrew's point, though, um, I, I call it the Noah's Ark strategy, mate. Two of everything. You don't need to be Noah, right? No, no one needs all the animals. As an investor, we don't need to be Noah. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Next one, mate, from Daniel. Running out of time. Let's try and keep this one quick. Hi, Scott and Andrew. 
Thanks for your nuanced, balanced conversations. Thanks, mate. I gain weekly, says Daniel, from your approach to long-term investing. I would like your thoughts on how you manage an ongoing investment in a company you've been following for a long time and was meeting your objectives, only to find the share price crashes following an announcement to the market that the free cash flow would drop significantly due to loss of significant contracts. The company Mm. is service stream. And until recently, it was a steady as she goes investment, and I had no reason to doubt the experience of the management team. Uh, he says, Dividend Investor, which is a multi full service, of which I'm a member, has moved this company to sell. And the reason for this is partly, in air quotes, and even more frustrating has been management's lack of transparency, end quote. To regain confidence in this company, what should the directors be doing? And other than looking for company announcements, what should I as an investor do? to discover if the company can recover. Thank you for your ideas around a broken investment thesis. What can I do as an investor to discover if the thesis can be repaired? Great question, Daniel. What do you reckon, mate? Well, I'll let you go first. Given it's a it's a full wreck, you're probably not um, much better than me, so I'll let, I'll let you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so Daniel, here's the thing. I would start by going back to the good times and ask yourself whether the thesis really was going as well as you thought or whether it was... Uh, the exception to the rule. So here's the thing. If I if I bought a cyclical company that I know is cyclical, take new car sales, right? A company like AP Eagers, I think it's called Eagers these days, are a new car sales business. They will do really well when the economy is great. They'll do really terribly when the economy is bad. If I buy it at the bottom of the market, say in March last year, and I spend the next two years of increasing car sales, I go, great, the thesis is working. And then when car sales fall off a cliff, I go, oh no, the thesis is broken. In that case, and I'm not saying this is you, Daniel, but I would say I would have got that thesis wrong. If I thought I'm a genius for the first two years and then the company screws up in year three, or even the company was great for the first years and then screwed up in year three, I would have misunderstood the business itself. I would have misunderstood the reality of the business, which is this is a cyclical business. I should expect big booms and I should expect big crashes. And I'm okay with that. That's why I'm buying it. Then the thesis isn't broken because the thesis should have included that cyclicality. Now, let's take it to service stream. I know this company super well. Um, I don't work on dividend investor. Um, I don't love service companies, generally speaking, because they are absolutely, as you found out, at the mercy of customers, right? And Mm. when those customers are doing a heap of work, mining services have been the same in the past, IT services have been the same in the past. When business is great and when capacity in the industry is small, you can make out like a bandit because you're the only people who can do the business. You can charge a fortune for it because no one else is there. But if the demand drops or the supply increases, you're going to go back to, and we talked about this on Friday, Andrew, um, when, when someone's earning super profits, it's going to attract competition. Mm. I, the question for you to ask yourself, Daniel, is was that business service stream was doing recently due to their own great work or was it due to the fact they were the, you know, they were, they were the Johnny on the spot when there was lots and lots of work being done and they could simply pick it up? For example, th- these guys are in the telecommunications services business. If they were simply benefiting from a once-off boom in the amount of infrastructure that needed to be built but once it's built is done then it would have been an unusually large and frankly you know out of the box time when service stream was doing better than it, than it otherwise might have and if that's the case your Boeing's take the boom but you should expect that, that would come back to some sort of normality right and so that's the kind of example if I if I give you that example uh, that's the question if you ask with service stream is it, if you're saying look it was doing well just because it happened to you know be in the right spot at the right time then maybe the thesis was actually broken early. You just didn't know it. Conversely, if you expected that it would do badly and maybe hopefully get some more business back again, then this is just one of those cyclical or just 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 pure might be actual cycle, might be pure volatility. Sometimes it loses customers, sometimes it picks them up. 
part of the business. But you need to understand that's the business that these guys are in. Um, hopefully our guys at Dividend Investor gave you that sense up front that this is the business that they were in. Um, but I think expecting a services business to be a steady-as-she-goes business is probably, I think, a mistake. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I, I, I just more generally, even even outside of that sort of um, specifics of a service business, I mean, every business, even the best businesses in the world are just mm. going to hit a tough patch. So for me... The the, the right, thing right, to work right. out is is as I always say is it is it structural is it cyclical is there something fundamentally broken with the business in which case any price mm-hmm. is probably too high um, if it's something is like oh it sucks we lost a big client um, but it was nothing to do with us so that you know maybe it happens sometimes a company um, I follow uh, uh, Erode um, which I won't go into right. the, the d- details of it but they okay. lost a, a big US client recently not because they did anything wrong but because their client got acquired by another business and they may just align their technology so it's like well it's not like they said oh you guys suck we're, we're getting rid of it and it, well it does suck mm, they lost mm, they lost mm. they lost a, a big client there but it was it, it does that change the value proposition um mm, mm. of of their of their products does that change their their growth potential no it doesn't so so it's it's about determining whether this is as you say just part of the ups and downs of the cycle events beyond your control or is there just something really 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 different here you know are you are you a department store that is fast losing relevance in the 21st century are you someone who's making a fax machine or a pager in a world where yeah, no one yeah. uses pages i mean that you know that when 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 you lose a, a client, you know because you make pages, that's that's you know that's that's a lot different than than something that's just a, a little bit of a, uh, a, a frustrating, annoying, uh, but transitory <laughs> kind of thing. And that's yeah, yeah. that's what. It, and frankly, I've had some of my best buying opportunities when you have had companies that release objectively bad news. It's not good news at all. They've lost a contract or they've missed. Yeah, missed winning yeah. a new contract. And it's like, there's no question about it. You can't you can put any amount of spin on it you like. It, it is bad news. 100% it's bad news. But the market tends to treat it as though, oh, my God, the whole business is going to hell in a handbasket. It's like, well, <laughs> not really. Yeah. You know? And then and then you get wonderful t- chances to buy. So just, mm-hmm. just tease that apart and distinguish, you know, what yeah, is it you're looking point. at here. Good point. I like that a lot. Um, let's move on to a question from Miles. Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thank you very much for answering my last question. It was insightful and a little bit humbling to hear your answers. Thank you, mate. I thought I might be a bit greedy and ask one more question about a company that is quite popular on Strawman. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. You, is Miles your brother or your uncle or your sister? What's going on <laughs> Well, let's see what he says Fess next. Up. Fess up. I oh, think good point. Okay, good point. So um, he says, that company is LaserBond. LaserBond uh, provides a protective laser coating to heavy machinery used for mining and construction. LaserBond says that it can improve the life of machinery for up to 10 years. Let's say a bulldozer has been coated after a visit to the laser bond shop. Once that dozer has been coated, it won't need to come into the shop for another 10 years. Do you think this potentially reduces its return customer base by lengthening the life of the service? That's a good problem, actually. It's a good point. And would you consider this a flaw in the business model? Things like this tend to put me off investing in companies like these, and I'm curious whether they would for you too. Thanks, Miles. What do you reckon, mate? Well, so LaserBond has been a real success for us. It was actually introduced to Strawman for one of our users called Winnie. Um, he's actually been with us from the early days. And this guy's delivered, get this, a 66% per annum return since June of 2018, um, mm-hmm. 83% in the last year. So he's a very savvy mm-hmm. investor. 
and he bought uh, or introduced Laserbond on his sample portfolio. Jeez, uh, uh, let me have a I'll look it up. Actually, yeah, back in June of 2018 at 13 and a half cents, and it's now worth a dollar. So it's been a 676% annualized money weighted return for him. And it really came to the interesting thing about Winnie is he always makes a good, um, he, he always outlines the thesis here and so mm-hmm. one of the things he says is actually it's going to be a bit of a lumpy performer because you're yeah, going to yeah. you're going to work is going to come in at different things but they are offering they are yes you know if they were everywhere and every single customer that in, in potential customer in the world were using them i guess by extending the life of their products they're probably it's having some kind of an impact but the the, the going back to total addressable market is actually pretty big and there's still right. a long way to go. So there's a lot of people who aren't using their services that could. And the any company, this is, goes beyond LaserBond, any company that mm. offers genuine value to their customers is 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 you're starting at it from a great a, a great starting point here. So you think about this: these 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 equipment is very 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 expensive to replace. If someone yeah. if someone says to you, "Hey, well, this is you've spent a fortune on this digger." And you hope to use this. You spend a bit of money with us, and we'll actually increase increase the life of that by right, a significant right, right. amount and make it much more effective. I mean, it's it's like yes, I will I will pay you that money. That is actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my interest relative to having to replace my trucks and right, diggers right. every five years. If I can just use your services, you know, it's it's like using the old Scotch Guard on your boots, you know, something <laughs> some, something like that. So. That's right. I don't. I don't. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's a concern that you need to worry about. Given it's a pretty small company, right? Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. there's a very big opportunity. It's a very uh, it's a family run yep. business. Um, yep. Look, there's there's a lot of detail on Strom, and you can you can mm-hmm. dig into it there. I think it's a. I think it's not a an unreasonable question to ask. I don't think I don't mm-hmm. see it as a major risk though. I don't own shares, by the way. I should say that I don't have a dog in the fight. Um, nice, thank you. I wish I wish I had bought it when <laughs> exactly when uh, when, when he first. Place? When when he first mentioned it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm gonna I'm gonna echo your thoughts from a slightly different perspective. So, Miles, I think so. There's a difference between there's a spectrum of business quality, and there's no rule that says that depending where you are on that spectrum should or will determine your investment returns from that company. So, for example, if you've got a company that if you've got a customer who so let's take a silly example, right? What's the best recurring business? It'd be a business that you, someone paid you for every single day, right? So guess what? That's newspapers. But does anyone want to buy newspapers as a high-quality business? No. On the other hand, you've got LaserBond. They're paying you every 10 years. Now, I'm not saying that's either in the spectrum. I don't know the business anywhere near well enough. But I just think... So So there is... And I'm not, not, being, a, not being funny, Miles. Um, you're absolutely right that more frequently would be better than not, given the choice. Because it means the customers are engaging you more frequently. They're paying you more frequently. You're more important and integral to their everyday business. And so just that makes instinctive sense, as Andrew says, that that would be a better quality business to own or to run if your customers needed you every single day. That'd be great, right? Mm. That being said, there are other businesses that you only use every 10 years, for example, in this case, LaserBond. And while I would love for them to use it more frequently, part of their value prop is you only use them every 10 years, but you're probably paying them a squillion bucks, right, for every, for every mm. treatment. Now, if it was only every three years, you'd pay them less because companies aren't going to pay that much money if it only gives you three years of life, they're going to pay that much money for 10 years of life. And so there's always a trade-off between the value proposition you make for your customer and how much they're going to pay you for that based on how much value you create. And so I wouldn't be at all concerned because firstly, if you only have one digger, then you only call LaserBond once every 10 years. 
But if you're a miner and you've got, I don't know, 100 diggers, 1,000 diggers, I don't, I'm not a mining expert, you're probably going every year anyway, every three months, and it's a different truck, but you're going regularly because you see value in the proposition. So mm. I would, uh, again, given the choice, would I have it more frequently? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do I think it undermines the value prop? No, not at all. As long as they remain the, 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 the business of choice. Now, it minimizes the, the, their market opportunity because if you had to have every truck in every month and pay you $1,000 every time, well, that's a pretty good business model. I'd take it if I had it. But if they're charging whatever they're charging for every 10 years and that's all they get, the question really is, if they went away, would the, would the customers be worse off? And if the answer is yes, then they're gonna keep, the customer's going to keep coming back, whatever the service interval looks like. So uh, that's probably the best way I can answer that one. Um, it's not the highest business quality. I want to say business quality, but business model quality is probably a better way to put it. So I'm not reflecting on laser bond itself. But if I could choose between a business that, if there are two businesses exactly the same and one had the customer coming in every month and one every 10 years, I'd absolutely choose the one every month. But as long as that business is priced well for what it does, as long as it remains super relevant to its customer, as long as they keep coming back, then the interval is the interval is the interval. Uh, I wouldn't be too worried about it. Mm. Anyone for that, mate? Uh, no, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, it, it's always just a, it's just always a question of the, the devil is always in the detail with these yep. kinds of things, and and each business is different and unique and it takes a bit of time but they, they've all got a lot of great information just read the annual reports and you'll, you'll get a much better sense of the kind of customers they have the kind of frequency mm-hmm. that they would need to use that product the addressable market all of the you know the the, the value proposition they have the competition yep. that they're up yep. against it just it's all it, you really need to take a holistic view and and you'll always find things on the negative and things on the positive um, yep. no business is perfect in every regard so you'll, you'll definitely find things businesses that I love and have a lot of money in um, um, that I think I really don't like this this part of it, um, but but don't you know if you look for perfection, you'll just never make an investment. I guess is right. The point totally, you totally. Nice one. Last one, mate, for today. Question from Sam. We'll try and squeeze it in because we've got a lot to get through over the next few weeks. Um, hi, Scott and Andrew. Following on from Scott's most recent discussion about Washington H. Sol Pattinson, and I will say here in brackets, I own shares on the podcast, highlighting its amazing returns over multiple time periods, which cannot be disputed. He says. I want to delve a little further into this company. Firstly, I'd be keen to hear Scott's thoughts on why you believe it's better to hold Solpat shares rather than shares in its individual constituents, most of which are ASX listed, he says, given Washington H. Solpattinson consistently trades at a discount to some of its parts, up to 30% historically. We'll get back to that. Doing so would allow you to choose not only to invest in certain parts of the conglomerate you don't particularly like, such as New Hope's coal business, and lastly, with the board independence between Brickworks and Solpats clearly jeopardised by the Milner family's cross-shareholdings, to what extent you allow poor corporate governance practices to influence your investment decisions? Full mm. on from Sam. Mate, I'll have first go at this because you asked me about it, but I'd love to hear yep. your thoughts if you're keen. All right. Yep. I'm going I'm um, to go back to the discount to the sum of its parts first thing and work backwards. So, Sam, I hear what you're saying about the discount to the sum of its parts. The difference I would say though, and I'm not sure whether this point was clear to you when you in the question or certainly to our listeners in the question, but if you're trading at a discount, then that's exactly what you would want. Um, effectively, what you're saying is if you bought the constituents, you'd pay a dollar. But if you buy a salt pats at a 30% discount, you're buying them all for 70 cents. So that almost by definition is the answer to your question. I'm not sure whether uh, that was what you meant or whether you, were, whether you were thinking that maybe it traded a premium. In other words, the companies were cheaper to buy individually. But given that you can buy a dollar's worth of assets for, in your example, 70 cents. I don't think it's that big a discount right now. I think it's less than that. Let's say it's 85 cents just to be conservative. 
then that's exactly what you'd want to do. So if you like the business, um, and you could you could either buy them individually for a buck together, so you know, ten cents each for ten businesses, just for the fun of it, a dollar for all of them individually, or buy them as a group for seventy five or eighty five cents. You should want to do that if you believed you like those businesses. So that's the discount piece. Can I can I just a devil's advocate here? Please I guess do. Sam might be emphasizing the word consistently here, which which yep. which means that although that is true, you're buying them yes. at cheaper. Um, yes. If it never if it never normalizes, then it's kind of like well, it's kind of well, it it it, it probably doesn't matter. But it it's you're not you're not actually getting the benefit of buying at a discount if that if that discount is never never uh, corrected. I agree with a couple of exceptions. The first is if you're getting the equivalent level of earnings and cash flow and dividends and you're paying 70 cents in the dollar, you should do it. So if a New Hope, to use this example, we'll get back to that in a second, is paying out, I don't know, a 5% dividend yield. If you buy Sol Patch, you're effectively getting a 7% dividend yield if that 30% okay. um, gotcha. yep. valuation holds. So firstly, you're getting more cash per dollar invested. Secondly, you're getting a broader share of the profits, which are only accounting profits to some degree, but you're getting those. Thirdly, if and when it comes time to sell some of those assets, like, for example, the API shareholding that it may well sell to West Farmers coming up, um, then you're going to get full value for that. So the, the, the value gets closed at that point. Um, gotcha. So I, I th- here's the thing. To your, to your point, actually, this is a really good point. So outside that, it actually doesn't... This is, this is gonna, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole. We're at the end of the podcast. But it doesn't matter that much um, whether the gap closes over time, right? Because if you're getting a proportional ownership and a proportional res- result from that... It's like a PE moving up and down, right? If you if it never closes but it never widens, then there's no net change. It's the same as if you bought it for 100 yeah. cents in the dollar and it never never changed. Mm. If you if I if I buy a a dollar for a dollar and I only get a dollar back, that's cost me a dollar. I get a dollar back. If I buy a dollar for 70 cents and it only stays at 70 cents, why well, I still get my 70 cents back? So mm. either way, you're actually you're not winning or losing as a result of that transaction unless the mm. gap moves. Now I'm absolutely to be really clear, I've never ever ever bought it because I expect the gap to close. So I'm happy to get the assets and the cash flows for a cheaper price, but I'm not buying it because I expect at some future point there will be some sort of reckoning and we'll get the full amount. There's no there's no expectation of that gap closing. So let's let's put that out there. Okay. Can I? So I know you, you, there's more to say here, but just to pick in on this, I, you'll know the answer better than me. Is part of this discount the fact that the actual value of some of their assets are not uh, properly accounted for on the balance sheets of some of their businesses? So. Uh, for example, um, this is the case with Event, right? They had a lot of property, and like they, I think the accounting rules state that you've basically got to have it on there at uh, at cost. Um, or I've got so so. What happens is you get things that like when you look at the book value, um, it's actually much cheaper than what it would be if in real life you sold a lot of these assets. I, I'm, it's a genuine open question. Is that potentially partly what's going on here with Solpats? <laughs> It might be what's impacting investors, and that we're always, you know, whenever you're trying to say why is the share price X, you're trying to get in the mind of the rest of the market and work out what they believe. Mm. Um, it shouldn't be because the, the the net tangible asset is uses the the market value of those shares and the market value of Solpats as a business. So mm. rather than looking at just the book value, it's not like it's a, a premium to book value. They say, okay, I own this many API shares, the current share price oh, X, I see. Okay. therefore okay. that's the value. Um, so it shouldn't impact it, but it might in some people's minds, absolutely, to your point, who are looking at book value investments and saying, hang on, it's a it's a decent premium to that. But it should be just the the net tangible value, which in this case is the, the share price, rather than the assets of the underlying businesses themselves. But doesn't it get, oh, we have way off traffic here, but doesn't it matter to, as, to, as to what percentage of the business you own? 
Um, yeah. Not in it, it does from an accounting perspective in terms of how you allocate the dividends or cash flows or profitability. So it's a, using the PE for sulfates is stupidly hard for exactly that reason, mate. Sometimes mm-hmm. if you own more than twenty percent of it, you allocate the entire accounting profit. You get twenty percent of the accounting profit. If you own less than twenty percent, you only get to count the dividends that you get paid in that value. So if you own a profit, if you own a stupidly profitable software company that doesn't pay any dividends. You get no value on your balance sheet if you own less than twenty percent of it if they don't pay dividends. Which obviously, mm. when you look at the NTA, you do a, you do account for that. So yeah, that, mm. that's also an extra squiggle. Um, PE is really hard to use, so don't use the PE for solpats. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right, gotcha. let's try and let's try and wrap this up. I sh- maybe I should have left this question. We're going a bit long, but let's go. So um, why not buy the individual constituents? I could. Um, what I like about Solpats, frankly, is its ability to reallocate cash without incurring taxes. So, uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a great example of this. When and if they sell their their shares in um, API, when they get a dividend from Brickworks, they can reallocate that money effectively tax effectively to whatever part of the business makes most sense. So they can reinvest it in their best ideas rather than to pay it out and then getting it back, paying tax on the dividends or paying tax on the capital grains and then doing it that way. So you get some extra benefit for being able to use the cash inside the entity. Now, there are still tax implications. I don't want to say it's tax-free. It's not, um, but you get benefits from from doing that. Um, you mentioned about certain parts of the conglomerate you don't like. I completely agree, by the way, with this one. So I have always held, I own Solpats. I've recommended it a few times. Despite their new hope coal business, I don't like the coal business. Um, I do think it's potentially a, a significant climate change risk. Again, out, separate from the politics and the, the ideology, if, if there are rules brought in as to how much mi- coal it can mine, there may be some stranded assets there. I'm fully aware of that. I'm happy to hold my nose on this one because I want the rest of the business. I'm happy to do that. Um, so there's that. Uh, so honestly, and, and you know what? The other thing, by the way, I will say, Sam, is on our forums at Share Advisor, in many, many, many times over the past probably seven or eight years since you first recommended it, people said, oh, I'm not going to buy Sopis. I'm just going to buy TPG or I'm just going to buy New Hope or I'm just going to buy API. And that's been fine. But to your very point, mate, the fact that it's outperforming over the long term over all those time periods just reminds me that, yeah, it seems boring. Yeah, it seems like we could be smarter or more active or more involved or just try and cherry pick it. Or you can just say, you know what? As part of a portfolio, these guys know what they're doing. Uh, they've done it incredibly well. I'm just going to back them. I'm going to back them with a portion of my portfolio, a portion of our share advisor scorecard, um, not try and be too clever. Now, it's other points, by the way, we have owned TPG separately, but it was as well as rather than instead of. It gives us diversification and all those things that Solpats comes with, which is positive. Um, last one, really quickly, and I'll, I will let you jump in, Ram. The board independence thing. Um, Sam, I am going to actually take the exact opposite view to you, uh, which is to say that the corporate regulators and the boffins and the academics say that board independence is important and should happen and is poor governance, as you rightly point out. You know what else is poor governance? The fact that Warren Buffett's been Berkshire Hathaway CEO for 50 years and chairman for the same period of time. That gets across from the corporate governance experts. It gets across from the experts that Berkshire Hathaway, and I own shares for full disclosure, um, has had the same directors for years. They're no longer independent. Not enough independent directors at Berkshire. Uh, I could honestly not care less at a company by company level. So if you're asking me what are the rights what are the right um, rules or guidelines? I think the guidelines are pretty fair in terms of if I had the average company with the average with an average group of knucklehead directors and people who are professional directors who just do it for a quid, who don't necessarily have any money invested in the company, who you know aren't in uh, who are you know there for the ride and or to bring their expertise, of course. But you know, do I want those people running Berkshire or do I want Warren Buffett and a couple of people who've been around the company for twenty five years? Well, that's an easy choice, right? It, it's in air quotes poor corporate governance. 
I think you should, as an investor, make exceptions for quality people in the right space. Now, the Milners have most of their family money in Solpats and Brickworks. If you reckon that's poor corporate governance, that's okay. I choose the opposite view, which is simply, if they've got literally hundreds of millions of dollars in this thing, do I think that do I trust them more than I trust you know some fly by night corporate you know managers that's, that's that's rude do I trust some professional directors who may or may not have a, a view of the business who may or may not share the ethos of the company who may or may not have any of their money let alone a decent amount of their money invested in the company I would absolutely take Robert Milner I, I, I like the guy personally for full disclosure I don't have any other relations with him or, or, or dealings um, but I like him I like that he's running the business I would back him I would back Warren Buffett to be non-independent and, and air quotes poor corporate governance um, and have those guys running the business rather than saying okay time to go let's break this thing up let's have proper air quotes um, professional directors in there who are going to be professional and whatever uh, I, I happily Jerry Harvey's the same at Harvey Norman by the way I have my issues with Jerry sometimes and other times not you can like Jerry you can hate Jerry but Jerry's trying to do the best for Harvey Norman and would some diversity help the board? Maybe, yeah, sure. But do I want to throw Jerry out just because he's hit some milestone timeframe? No, absolutely not. So um, I don't think it's poor, go- poor governance practices in the effect. Do I agree with the guidelines? Kind of. Uh, but I think there should be exceptions that we should make, even if the regulators don't. I would hate to see a scenario where Solpats and Brickworks adopted some sort of official, you know, kind of proper uh, academic version of pro- corporate governance rather than actually people who know the business who give an absolute stuff about what happens to it have all their money in the business I, I, I'll take skin in the game over over the over the rules any day you Ram? yeah I mean it, it, it's case by case basis it, I mean the, the big things that it depends on then is the caliber quality honesty capability of, of the people and I think when you've got you know again decades of sort of history here serious runs on the board serious skin in the game and alignment yeah I, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of to not to not see you know standard governance rules um, applied uh, in that in that case. I think it's common sense, right? There are, the, the rules have to be in place or the guidelines have to be in place because they have to deal with, and we've seen some shocking corporate governance over the last couple of months. I'm not going to name any companies. I don't want to end up in court. You read the AFR, you'll see plenty of them. Uh, those companies probably met the ASX's guidelines, right? And that's mm. for me, that that's kind of exactly the case in point. So Sam, I, I don't blame you for asking the question. I think it's the right question to ask. And academically, they are poor in air quotes. Um, I think in this case, either the rules need bending um, where it makes sense to do so, or certainly as an investor, we have the opportunity to do that. Um, I'm very happy with the Brickworks management team, the Solpats management team, the directors of both businesses, the Milner family being involved. In fact, I'll, I'll say the reverse. I would be less likely to own Solpats should the Shelly be unwound because I think it actually gives the company more strength. And if you trust the Milners, you want them to be in charge. If you don't trust them, it shouldn't matter what the corporate governance rules are, right? If you don't trust them, you don't like them. Don't buy the shares no matter what the what the boardroom looks like. If you do trust them, you do like them, you're going to do the right thing, then you want them to have control and, and actually influence the, the outcome for the business. Well said. Good time to finish? Yep, let's let's put a pin in it. We will. We've got a lot more to do, mate. We've got so many. Next week. You want to come back next week to another one? Oh, I wouldn't miss it. Wouldn't not miss it. <laughs> Good man. All right. Don't forget... You please, if we wouldn't mind, please do subscribe to the podcast. Please make sure you also leave us a review and a rating if you wouldn't mind. By the way, quick ad, if you're also on the YouTubes, and we all are these days, jump on the Motley Fool Money Australia, Motley Fool Australia, the Motley Fool Australia uh, YouTube page. It's reasonably new-ish, uh, adding more re- content regularly. If you've heard our stock of the week, uh, that's one of our marquee things, in video in full living colour. I'm not sure that's good or bad, actually. Uh, but in any case, have a look at the have a look at the Motley Fool Australia YouTube channel if you would. Go to strawman.com, of course, for Andrew. He's got some interesting news coming up, I hear, but I won't say too much more about that. Just just keep your eyes peeled. Uh, please do, as I said, subscribe, leave us a review, leave us a rating, tell your friends. 
make sure they get some of the good stuff that you're listening to as well. In the meantime, until, well, Stock of the Week on Wednesday, Fool on. See you later. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.